post-apocalyptic fiction has largely moved on from nuclear fallout to the escalating threat of climate change. But in the midst of all the gloom and doom, some stories explore a future where humanity gets it right, sort of. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author Claire North. Her latest novel, Notes from the Burning Age, is a climate thriller fantasy from Orbit Books, and it's out today. Claire and I discuss using your cell phone for self-defense, writing non-linear emotional character arcs, and how we can each live a little more sustainably. So without further ado, let's get to the good part. Hello, and welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Claire. It's so great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so I was looking through my email, and I think you might hold the record for the podcast interview that's been in the works for the longest. But hey, here we are 19 months after that initial email, and I'm thrilled we're finally able to chat. I'm so, so sorry. It's been... It's been a long, <laughs> I'm not going to say it's been a long 2020, 2021. It's been a long five years. I'm really sorry. Yeah, it's it's definitely been uh, an interesting few years for the world. Last year and a half or so, especially, that's for sure. Yeah. But yeah, so before we get well and properly started, uh, I have to admit that I spent the last day and a half or so thinking about the logistics of using my smartphone as a weapon for self-defense, which I'm hoping is not actually as weird as it sounds and a completely normal reaction to learning about urban eskrima for the first time. It's a really good reaction. I always teach self-defense with a cry of, A, I'm teaching you how to fight so that you're better able to think, um, and I'm teaching how to fight so you're better able to run away with confidence, but also literally so you can think. So if you're thinking about using your phone as a weapon, you are thinking about violence, which will keep you safer. I applaud this thought. <laughs> yeah, although not that uh, I've been in any situations for the last uh, like 12 months now where that would be an issue. I've mostly been confined to my house. So Yeah, me That's too how it goes. But yeah, so I guess to get us properly started, can you remember what first made you fall in love with fantasy and science fiction? Oh, I think it was almost certainly The Color of Magic by Terry Pratchett. I have this very vivid memory of being given a copy of that when I was a kid of indeterminate kidness and then being like, I need to read everything Terry Pratchett has ever written in his entire life ever. And the wonderful thing was it just kept coming as well. Oh, Terry Pratchett, yay. And then it became, well, if people are writing stuff like this, I must now sit in the library on the floor next to the kind of, you know, the spinny shelves, the spinny library shelves you get, which have A to Z, and you just kind of work your way down from Adams to Zelazny, just doing that for like the next five years. So, okay. So how exactly does one write and publish a book by the age of 14? Because I think the average for most writers seems to be closer to two or three times that age. Uh, Only child. Not much to do over the summer holidays. Very supportive and loving family, in fairness. like I, I think in the story of my life, I've always just been a bit like, oh, you know, only child's total geek. But I should probably add, my parents didn't laugh in my face when I said, mummy, daddy, I want to write books. They said it was a terrible idea, but they didn't actually go, no, be a dentist. So that was probably very, very helpful. Yeah, like... I went to school at the other end of the city and all my friends were at the other end of the city. I didn't have that many friends until I was like 15 anyway. I just, I was, I was a nerd who loved libraries with not a huge amount of stuff to keep me occupied otherwise. And I'd finished reading the A to Z section of the fantasy books and I'd finished with Zelazny, which is a great note to finish on. I was 
bored. Imagine there's like a whole literary superhero origin story happening here. Imagine there's like capes. But yeah, that. And then I accidentally wrote a book. And again, my parents were not only supportive, they'd also kind of encountered the publishing industry a lot and a bit like, well, it's not a real job, assume nothing will happen, but you might as well take a punt, but also get a real job, be a dentist. (laughs) Yeah, uh, that definitely sounds like the very uh, parenting thing to do. Um, But yeah, I mean, obviously, I would say it is somewhat of a real job. You've published quite a few books now under quite a few names, actually. So it seems to have worked out. Thank you. It's... It, it is a real job, but we could have a whole conversation about the nature of publishing and how economically it's a very unreliable business and how kind of also emotionally in terms of kind of economics and control, it's a very unreliable business. You can't guarantee that anything you ever do will ever achieve anything ever. You can't control the sales. You can't control time. And so in that sense, it can become a real job, but it's not necessarily also an industry geared up towards stability and reliability. So having a backup job, even if you're doing really well, is just, I think, quite an emotional, healthy thing to do. So you can always be a bit like, well, if the world does crash and burn, at least I can go and, I don't know, wrangle sheep, whatever it is you want to do as your backup career. Yeah. So I guess, have you been wrangling sheep this last year? Because I feel like we're kind of in those circumstances. (laughs) (laughs) Well, ironically, having said all of that, uh, this year, my backup career has been writing books. Because what I usually do is I'm a theatre and music lighting designer. And that has definitely stopped. 900 people sweating all over each other was not a cool look for 2020. So bizarrely, my own words have turned around and bitten me in the face. But if I could wrangle sheep, I definitely would. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, okay. So yeah, on the note of lighting then, what exactly does your job entail with that? Because my entire knowledge about writing can pretty much be summed up as, hey, maybe don't sit in front of a bright window when you're on your Zoom calls. <laughs> yeah, which I'm doing, by the way. But the weather in London is so absolutely terrible right now, you probably wouldn't know. Um So I trained as a theater lighting designer, which in theory consists of turning up anywhere between a year to six weeks before a show opens and going, hmm, but would it look good in blue? Hmm. Um, And being all like, but how does the sunset reflect the journey of the emotional drama of the piece? Um, While all around you, people scream, there's no cable and the actor hasn't turned up and, and things kind of just gently collapse around you and you do your best to make it look nice. I did that for a while. And now I do mostly gig lighting, where you turn up about eight hours before a gig and you go, great, this music, it sounds like what then? And then you do your very, very best to make the lights look good at the same time as listening to music you've never heard before. Sometimes you get lucky. Sometimes you've heard it before. Sometimes you go on tour with people you've heard before, or they've released an album long enough ago that you can probably find some of it on Spotify. Um, But a lot of the time you're sat there at 8 p.m. clinging to a lighting desk going, I have no idea what's going to happen, but I hope it happens at a kind of rate of four beats rather than three per bar, because three per bar is actually quite hard to work with as a lighting engineer. And yeah, then you wing it, but you wing it in an incredibly sophisticated technical way. And that's my story and I'm sticking to it. (laughs) Wow. So I've actually, you know, never given that much thought, but I guess there's a lot of kind of live performance element on the lighting for these live music gigs. Yeah. The irony of lighting is that people only really notice it when it goes wrong. Our job is to catch you unawares and try and elevate the experience you're having, but in a way that you don't necessarily realize is happening to you. Everyone kind of goes, oh, I saw Beyonce play the Super Bowl, or I saw Muse or some other popular music group, you know, play in the stadium and it was incredible and it just moved me. It changed everything about 
how I appreciate entertainment and it's an experience that stuck with me forever. And then you go, what was the lighting like? And they go, I have no idea. But I promise you that that lighting changed your experience. It completely transformed your understanding of everything that happened. And you would only have noticed that if it failed. Yeah, that definitely sounds about right. And I guess, so if you don't mind me asking, I think you said before you have synesthesia. So what is that like? How does that affect the lighting experience for you? Um, synesthesia sort of hits the writing and the lighting equally, actually. I have very strong feelings about when the light is wrong. I have very strong feelings about sounds being a certain color. And like you can hear music play and you can just feel if it's the wrong color. And some of that is culturally constructed. A lot of death metal people are like, use green. And you go, well, that's a choice. Or, um, you know, sad songs about death. People go, use red. And there is a degree of cultural choice there. But a lot of the time also you can hear a song and you can feel that it's it should feel this color and then the color has a weight and the color has a texture and music has weight and texture too. And they should align. They should feel similar. If they disagree with each other, they should disagree with each other in a way that is complementary. So it's like you're holding a, a smooth, heavy object in one hand and then like a squishy, furry object in the other hand. And you can feel the weight of them. And between the two of them, you're making something that is a full-blown sensory experience, which again is all that lighting is. Lighting is just adding to that full-blown sensory experience. But I, I feel music as that color and color has weight and that weight can be wrong or it can be right and it, it, these things should mix up. And the same thing happens with the words. I've driven many an editor mad over the years by them sending a note going, I don't really understand this sentence. Could you do this? And me being like, mm, but that's the wrong color of lilac. It doesn't, it, the, the words have a music and the music has a color and the words have a weight and and what you're doing is changing the color and the weight and the the texture of that sentence and i know what you're trying to do but it's it's not dark blue enough which i apologize to all my editors down all the years i'm really really sorry yeah that is so incredibly fascinating to me because i'm one of those people where if i'm reading i can't even picture anything in my mind like there's no visual element whatsoever so to hear like all that goes into that that's insane but again, I think the experience of reading is not dissimilar from lighting in as much as you tend to only really notice that your eyes are running over a page and taking in inky things when it goes wrong. Like you notice the typo, or you notice the kind of the stylistic choice that has knocked you out of that sense of immersion. We notice bad writing a lot more readily, I think, that we're kind of absorbed and taken out of good writing. Good writing is there to lure you in so that only after you've finished reading do you go, wow that was great. And also those were words. Yeah. Like you're saying, again, it's very uh, similar between lighting and writing, I guess. But okay. Yeah. So a little bit back to writing then, uh, since that is technically while you're here, I suppose. Uh, so walk me through this journey of all these pen names. It seems like a pretty unusual path for an author. Uh, yeah. So um, I started out as me, Catherine Webb, that being who I am. Um, and this was before Amazon was really a thing. And it was before eBooks were really a thing. That's how old I am now. And I was writing YA because I was a child. Like I was just, you know, it's what you do. You're a kid. You, you write what you know. I did that for, I want to say eight books. But obviously during that time I was growing up. And one of the fascinating things about starting writing young is the the change that all writers go through anyway in their course of their lives is accelerated a thousand percent. You can see that change happening very, very quickly just because you're going from 14 to 18 to 21. And those are huge changes. So yeah, got to kind of 18, 19, started writing adult fantasy, which is not the same as 
porn fantasy, but sometimes these things get mistaken for each other. Um, Grown-up <laughs> fantasy. Um, and my publisher's like, great, well, we need to keep kind of the publicity and the momentum we've built for Catherine Webb, Teenage Sensation. But at the same time, we need to essentially slap a warning on this book going, this is not for 12-year-olds. This is for grown-ups. Um, so let's have a name change. And they're also like, you know that feeling when you go to a fantasy bookshelf and you see if Neil Gaiman's written another one and he hasn't and your eye drift downwards. And as your eye drifts down, it passes Neverwhere. And you're like, God, that was a great book. I wonder if there's something like that. And then your eye hits Griffin. Kate Griffin happened with a cry of, let's just tap into people's disappointment that Neil Gaiman hasn't written another one. So that's how that happened. Also, it's higher up the shelf. It's away from kind of your Star Wars spin-offs and your vampire porn, which is great. So I did that. I did Kate Griffin for six books, I think. Yeah. And then went to university, did all of that, went to RADA and became a technician. And when I was about 25, 24, 25, there was a time um, I wrote Harry August and my publisher was like, great, this is literature. And I was like, what is literature? And they were like, well, that's a complicated question that much ink has been spilt over. But right now what it is, is a marketing term. You are now literature. Please be someone new. And again, we could have a whole conversation about genre snobbery and culture and how that can go jump in the bin. But I'll spare you for now. Um, and they're like, you need a new name. You need a new name to kind of tap into your new spirit of being cross-genre. And you know that feeling when you go to see if David Mitchell's written a new one and he hasn't and your eye drifts gently downwards? Claire North, let's do that. <laughs> um, and that's how I ended up with three pseudonyms. That's that's amazing. I love that story. And I mean, like you're saying, it seems so much as marketing. So I guess as long as it helps you sell books or allows you to keep writing, uh, can't really complain. Yeah, it's a really I'm thrilled by kind of the results. I feel incredibly privileged and lucky at how well my publisher has looked after me for all these years. Like the loyalty and the thoughtfulness they put into that is genuinely breathtaking and also life changing. At the same time, there is a conversation to be had about, well, OK, Maybe one day we do need to have just gender neutral author names. Everyone just becomes gender neutral, gender neutral covers, gender neutral design, and also then maybe genre blind covers, genre blind design. You sell the book on its merit without all these cultural preconceptions. And at some point, I think someone does need to lead to that fight. And I want that fight to happen. But as is always the case with battles over culture and ideas of what is you know, what do I read? That very personal question, what do I read? I feel the fight needs to happen and I do not want to be the first person to step into that battlefield. I want someone else to do it for me and then redefine the conversations around how we market and talk about books. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you. I would rather us get to that place, but yeah, it seems like a scary battlefield to step into first for sure. One of the distinct things about your writing that uh, stands out to me is the tendency to approach things kind of non-linearly, I think is how I'd describe it, uh, whether that's jumping around in time or revealing information uh, at slightly different points than readers might expect. Uh, so how do you approach this style of writing? Um, chaotically. Again, I don't know whether this ties into the synesthesia, but my attitude to a book is the emotional destination is almost invariably A to B. You start off with whatever your initial character premise is, there's redemption, there's trauma, there's hope, there's love, there's pain, there's vengeance, whatever it is, you start in a very clear place that then has to go to another place. But that doesn't mean that 
even if you're going emotionally in that direction, doesn't mean that the book itself has to then follow time in that direction. So much of the lived human experience is of waking up age 35 and going, oh, that thing that happened when I was 22, that had this effect. And our lives don't happen in a kind of an emotional straight line. Our lives are a hodgepodge of things coming back to haunt us and things we forgot being remembered and consequences we didn't predict suddenly becoming relevant and actions we did 15 years ago suddenly completely changing their meaning. I'm like, actually, life is not lived emotionally. It's not clean. Nothing is ever clean about it. So the idea that a story has to go A to B in any way other than emotionally kind of strikes me as not not particularly engaging, I guess, but also not necessarily particularly true to the human experience. We are constantly rebuilding ourselves in a very scattershot way, I guess. I don't necessarily buy into books where on page one, there is a problem and by page 600, it has been solved in a clean way emotionally. I don't know if that makes sense. I hope it does. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it definitely makes sense. And uh, yeah, I would say your books are kind of progressing towards not really having that very clean emotional ending. Um, and definitely there's some shades of gray there. Well, so I don't know how much of this was just a one-off thing and how much uh, you might actually have plans to pursue this, but I did notice when I was reading The Pursuit of William Abbey that you've canonically tied most of your books together uh, with many of your Claire North and even Kate Griffin books existing in the same universe. Yay. I'm so glad that people have spotted that. It makes me really happy. Um, I did that for fun because I really wanted to. There are tiny, tiny Easter eggs to the other books <laughs> in a few of the other Claire Norths. But generally speaking, I, I don't have kind of grandiose ideas of like a Claire North universe because I think that would be hilariously hard work and probably not achieve very much other than make me smug. But it is nice to be able to, I guess, kind of acknowledge that there's been a lot of books now. Um, and I'm particularly thrilled and grateful that you spotted the link to the Kate Griffin books because those two audiences don't necessarily cross over. And that's exactly the kind of thing I was hoping would happen. And it makes me unbelievably happy. It was pure self-indulgence. I try not to be a self-indulgent writer, but every now and then slip up and just go, <laughs> I want to have fun with this. Woo. But imagine that woo was incredibly literary. Yes, exactly. Yep, Because you do indeed write literature, whatever that means, right? <laughs> But yeah, uh, so in addition to the fighting, the writing, and the lighting, uh, which would be an amazing title, I guess, for some future autobiography, you've also stood for the Green Party a couple times over the last few years. So what drove that decision for you? Um, the world is very much on fire, and that is bad and sad. And that has, I think, kind of a growing awareness of how much the world is on fire has very much influenced a lot of my recent books. I think 84K was a miserable uh, novel all about neoliberalism. If you want to be made really depressed, I heartily recommend 84K. But I'm thinking of rechanging that tagline to, if you want to make a neoliberal unhappy, buy 84K. That's my pitch. Um, so like, I've been heading towards getting more politically anxious and sad anyway over the years. And I want to get involved however I really can. I'm also in a position in my life where I've done kind of in your 20s, you spend your 20s desperately worrying about where you're going to get your next meal from and struggling to find your place and struggling to kind of just find a place to stand in life where you feel safe. I'm now through that age. I'm in my 30s and I have the privilege and safety to be able to go, okay, what matters to me 
what do I value? And what matters to me is coming together as the human species, as a collective entity to tackle climate change and global inequality. And so I have the privilege to be able to go, okay, well, I can give some space to that. And the Green Party in the UK is a very small party, but it's a very important party, I think. And it just seemed like if I can use what I have to help, then I probably should. And it's quite nice to feel like you are part of a community that feels the same way. Because particularly during COVID, I think it's very easy to look at the world and be scared and feel small and feel isolated and feel that humanity is not necessarily a species that we're all part of together. And actually finding community is a really good way to battle that. And in many ways, it's exactly what we do as well when we read and write books. It is literally about engaging with our fellow humanity. So I guess in that sense, climate change is just a logical next step. Yeah. And uh, it's funny that you're saying, you know, world being on fire and climate change and everything, because the reason why you're here is discussing notes from the burning age, literally about the world being on fire and climate change. Yay. These things connected. Stay tuned for more after the break. I like to think of stories as windows and mirrors. So either you see yourself or it transports you to another world you haven't ever seen before. When you're writing a novel, you can put all your jokes in and then whittle it down until just the best ones are left. When we're on an aeroplane, it's one of the few times where we're not super connected. What would happen right now if something terrible happened? I thought, if I can pull this off, I've done something nobody's ever done. And that's exactly what happened. You can't get more right than Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. Hey, everybody. This is Cindy Burnett, and I am the host of the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Several times a week, I interview authors about their latest works. We chat about their covers, their titles, sometimes what inspired them, and always what makes their book stand out. I hope you'll check out my podcast. It can be found on all of the major platforms, including Apple and Spotify. Thanks so much. This episode is brought to you by Shadowed Stars, a sci-fi series with a mature flavor from author Stephen Kautz. Mysterious abductions and UFO sightings have caused the world to unite under one leader. So begins the journey into space and the rise of an intergalactic war. Shadowed Stars will be at least eight books long and takes a bold new approach to storytelling. Even numbered books follow one set of characters while odd books follow another with crossovers between. Book one, Shadowed Stars, is available for purchase now on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, iTunes, and more. The sequel, Shadowed Stars, Reign of the Black Guard, will be released by the end of June. Find out more at shadowedstarsbooks.com. Author Stephen Kautz has created a dark and riveting tale where the very survival of the human race is no guarantee and threats lurk around every shadowed star. Uh, Yeah, so do you have a pitch for Notes for the Burning Age? Do I have a pitch? I probably should have a pitch, given it's being published imminently and it's my job to be able to pitch it. Hmm, a pitch. Ah, okay. Here's my best shot. This is not a post-apocalyptic book about climate change, because we've all read books about climate change in which we end up eating ashes from a broken can while sat by a a guttering fire while being chased by cannibals. It's not that. Um, There is a future which we can make right here, right now, which is utopian, which is equitable, which is 
friendly and just and humane and in which we actually live in harmony both with our planet and with each other. And that's the future that I think we can create. And I wanted to write a book that looked forward to a future in which we could make that. I wanted to write an optimistic look at a future that talked also about environmentalism and talked about it from the point of view of positive action rather than ashes and sackcloth. Um, So it is a positive look at a future in which we got it right. And yes, there is technically speaking war and espionage and cat and mouse chases and thriller elements and people running through the snow and drama and all of that stuff because ultimately I love me a thriller. But if you ignore the fact that I love me a thriller, it is technically a utopian look at a future where we get it right. Yeah, I love that. But yeah, so like you're saying, on the one hand, this book does feel very optimistic, right? Because it's not that bleak future. Uh, Humanity sort of beat climate change and has lived in harmony with the world for a few centuries. Uh, But they were also sort of forced into that by these mighty avenging Earth spirits nearly wiping everyone out. Yeah. Ultimately, I still am a fantasy writer. When we talk about climate change, I think that we often approach it from one of two angles. We approach it from the very practical thing of, well, if we get our asses in gear and deal with climate change, then we'll all be less poor, less flooded, less starving, and less angry. Like from a very kind of, not exactly nihilistic point of view, but a very pragmatic, level-headed, we're going to sort out the economy kind of way. And that's true, and that's great, and that's actually a very convincing argument to get our asses in gear, but it's not an emotional hook. Whereas the narrative of climate change that goes actually there is merit in being at harmony with the world and through being harmony with the world, being harmony with each other in acknowledging that the air we breathe is the same air, that the water we drink is the same water and that actually to honour our brothers and our sisters and our kin and our neighbours and our family and our children yet to come, we have to honour that reality. We have to honour the air, we have to honour the water, we have to honour the soil, we have to honour the fact that these things will outlast us that's much more emotional and that's much more narrative. And from that point of view, having the idea of kind of the earth spirits, having the idea of the fire spirits and the river spirits is a very good shorthand, a very quick way into that story and that narrative of connectedness, I guess, and of consequence and of that more emotional route to action. It's also, once again, a glorious illustration of why fantasy rocks, because you can do that as a very speedy shorthand for power and majesty and the bigness of this world and the bigness of everything around us and the bigness of what it is to be part of a species and part of a planet, you can do that in about three seconds flat. Whereas outside fantasy, I think you have to spend an inordinate amount of time sat around talking about these ideas without the joy of just these wonderful images to get you into it. And uh, I guess in addition to that joy in these wonderful shorthand images, there's also kind of the realism of how humanity would respond in that situation. Because, you know, even with all of that uh, and this great, you know, post-climate change future, there's people who still want to watch the world burn for the sake of quote-unquote progress. Yeah. But again, I think what's interesting is, and I try to talk about this in the book a bit, is that an awful lot of the time the progress that is being sought by people who, in the case of real life, deny climate change, and in the case of the book, deny not only climate change, but also climate change's willingness to stomp on you with enormous mountain-sized feet. I think what's interesting is that that progress is often very sincerely meant. It is a narrative that has come out of decades or centuries of stories about humanity as the hero, stories of humanity as not one species, as us all being different from each other. There are heroes and there are villains 
and it's every man for himself. Those ideas, I mean, when I say them out loud, obviously, because I'm a left-wing squishy liberal, they sound terrible, but there's a way of expressing those ideas that sound empowering. And there isn't a truth about that. Um, Again, I suppose I should probably be saying, please buy notes from a burning age to make neoliberalism sad. But like, there there is a valid point about very few people ever wake up and go, today I will be the villain. People wake up and go, today I will do what I think the right thing is. And you can almost certainly be wrong about what you think the right thing is. The world is full of people who are wrong about that. But very few people wake up and think, I would like to see it burn for the sake of burning. Almost invariably, people think they're doing, in italics, the right thing. And I find that endlessly fascinating. And I think building on that, a lot of people think they're doing the right thing for themselves, which might make them more villainous in my mind. Uh, But it is interesting to see kind of antagonists who think they're doing the right thing for humanity. I'm not sure if most people think they're doing the right thing for humanity, but I think there is a cynicism that often settles in. And I think you can see it in recent years as well. A cynicism of, well, no one's going to do the right thing. Everyone's going to be cynical. Everyone's going to screw me over. So I might as well make choices that will benefit me in the short term. And the more you believe that and the more that's the story, I think the more that becomes an insidious and dangerous truth that threatens our very survival as a culture and a species. And so one of the ways in which I tried to write Notes of the Burning Age is as a counter-argument to that to go, actually, cynicism does not create the answer. Cynicism gets you stomped by giant mountains. And even if you think you're doing the right thing for you and you think everyone else is going to be out to get you, that's not actually what the history of the world shows per se. We are a cooperative species and we can make brilliant things together. The last few hundred years have been the history of attempting to overturn misogyny, colonialism, uh, racism. It's been it's been centuries of fighting incredibly hard to redefine what it is to be human. And that battle is being won. It feels incredibly hard right now, but it is being won. And to embrace the idea that actually we're not all of us heroes. We're not all of us turning up and standing on top of a podium and going, listen to me, I'm in charge. But what we are, are one of millions who turned up and were there for each other. And that that has power, I think is incredibly important. And again, I think that's why I probably write about this stuff rather than just stand on a soapbox, because the act of reading is again about turning up and sharing an experience with your fellow humans. Like We are a collective species united by our stories. And our stories don't have to be of the hero making the decisions for us. The stories are of us all turning up together. Yeah, uh, way better said than I could ever say that. <laughs> Thank you for that. Oh, that's, that's very generous. Thank you. I feel it was waffly, but I'm grateful. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's talk about the notes part of Notes from the Burning Age a little. So the main character, Ven, used to be this priest whose job was to sort through ancient texts from our time and label the dangerous ones as heresy. So how did you go about choosing which things should be heresy? Um, I tried to not necessarily make those choices as much as I humanly could. I firmly believe that all knowledge is valuable. And I think that the history of the world is the history of you invent nuclear fusion, you have created a nuclear bomb, and after you've created a nuclear bomb, all the scientists turn around and go, I wish we'd known what that meant. Like, all knowledge is valuable. I think what I tried to do when looking at heresy was not even to make that knowledge inaccessible. Part of Ven's job is to go, well, this is dangerous and you should definitely write essays on it before you're allowed to just go out there and and, de- and handle it. Like, you should think about the knowledge. You should think about how this relates to society. But I think I used the word heresy to discuss more kind of 
almost the abuse of ideas. Ideas themselves are always interesting and important, but it's when we grab hold of an idea and then we just sort of flail it around, I guess. I'm trying to think of a good example. Non-contextually, I guess, the thing that keeps leaping to mind is anti-vaxxing, because right now, COVID. Um, There is a long medical history of medicine screwing things up. And at the same time, vaccines are amazing, and they make everything better and are going to save the planet. So there, there is a truth. There is a truth that in the past, medicine has not always got it right. And that is true. And to talk about that, but then not talk about how vaccines are always going to save the world, I guess what I'm trying to say is that no idea is heretical, but ideas without context, ideas without thought, ideas without sitting down and going, right, let's do 3,000 words on the history of all of these complicated things, that's what's dangerous. And that's what I try to make dangerous in Notes from the Burning Age. The villains in that book grab hold of certain ideas, superiority of man, fossil fuels as power, you know, driving forward in a free market economy without any regard to social cohesion and the value of people's lives. They grab hold of these ideas which by themselves are horrendously distractive, but they do exist within the context. They exist within a place. And even with stuff like fossil fuels, I try to go out of my way to have people go, well, fossil fuels did change the world. They then nearly killed it. But there was a time and a place for this conversation in this context. Knowledge is complicated. Um, And heresy is a very simplified word, word for that. But I try as much as I can. I probably don't succeed, but I try my best to talk about ideas as complexity. Yeah, uh, I appreciate that complexity. And I also really appreciate the idea of the villains searching for, you know, nuclear weapon knowledge, and they have to wade through piles of cat pictures and bad poetry first. (laughs) Yeah, I thought it was very important that we acknowledge that most of the internet right now is porn and cute kittens. Yep. (laughs) Okay. Um, So I'm curious what inspired and I'm going to get this pronunciation wrong, so I apologize. The Kakoi? So I wanted to do a story in which humanity has been through innumerable migrations and has all got mixed up and all the ideas have got mixed up and together. Um, And a lot of the ideas um, that you get from kind of humanity are of spirit animals, essentially. You know, the, the rock has a spirit, the river has a spirit, the forest has a spirit. This exists in Russian culture, in Western European cultures, in paganism, in animism, in Taoism. It's all over the world. In a lot of indigenous and American cultures, the idea of the spirit of the thing is incredibly pervasive. And I wanted that to have been given a really big form, not least because I feel that certainly in the kind of conversations around climate change right now, we're more and more paying attention to indigenous voices because they're right and they are guarding the land. Um, And a lot of those indigenous voices frame the language of climate activism through the water is sacred. And both as a cultural truth, but also as an incredibly powerful symbol for what we're fighting for, it's great. Like, yes, thank you. We We owe you a debt all you people who stand up and fight for these causes. We owe you such a debt. And that image is incredibly powerful. And through kind of the cultural mishmash of humanity I was looking at in this world, I thought, well, there's a Japanese idea of kami, of the spirits of the forest, the spirits of the stones and the rivers. And in northern Japan, the Aino people have the kamu. I, again, I'm probably mispronouncing that terribly. Seems, well, given that these ideas of 
the kind of the living spirits are so pervasive as universal, it would make sense that we'd take some of that language to describe this enormous, powerful thing. And as a thing itself, again, it stands for, I think, a glorious metaphor for the bigness of the world. It is very hard as a human species to comprehend bigness. And again, fantasy gives you a tool to do that so beautifully, I think. Yeah, and I'm not sure if this inspired the Kakwe at all, but I was looking up and there's an Argentinian legend that the Kakwe is a punishment for bad deeds and its coming brings the rain and fighting among brothers. And that seems very thematically on point for Notes from the Burning Age. I was not aware of an Argentinian legend on that one, but yes, there's a lot of legends actually. I think there's, there's again a Native American legend, which is very similar of Mother Earth is bleeding. And so the child kind of rises up, the giant rises up and spreads discord amongst all of humanity until humanity wipes itself out. There's a lot of legends which do that. And it, I think it does it for, I find it fascinating that those legends are so old for a start, but I think it also it says something very important about humanity that we have those stories. Yeah. And so on a very deep and literary note, I do have to ask you the important question. Have you searched the internet for images of Kakoi? <laughs> no. Am I going to be horrified? Yes and no. So there's a bird, and I'm not completely convinced that it's not a Jim Henson puppet that has been photoshopped. <gasps> I am not convinced this is a real live bird, because it is terrifying. <laughs> and its eyes are about half the size of its head. Oh my god, I'm going to search this the second this is over. I'm so excited. <laughs> so yes, uh, I both recommend and do not recommend looking up pictures of the Kakoi bird, because it is, uh, it's very interesting. I'm so excited. Yay. No, I hadn't looked it up because I, I think I looked up the words to make sure I wasn't about to trample all over someone's deeply held linguistic and cultural heritage. And I think remember thinking it was fine. I have not found a Monster Jim Henson bird. I'm really excited by this. Yes, uh, Monster Jim Henson bird is <laughs> very accurate. Uh, you will know it when you see it. Uh, so, okay, back on track. Uh, sorry for that tangent. But I'm curious, uh, how would you classify this book? Because I sort of like to think of your early Claire North stories as the Immortals with Problems books, and uh, your recent ones as, uh, depending on the mood I'm in, either your rightfully politically angry books, or if I'm feeling particularly poetic, the Fuck-isms book, uh, with 84K being Fuck Capitalism, William Abbey being Fuck Imperialism, and Sweet Harmony being Fuck Sexism. Um, so Notes from the Burning Age feels slightly different than that. I think your assessment of my my literary output is bang on the nail. Um, yes, that is precisely what I have been writing. I think that Burning Age is in many ways a, oh God, environmentalism, ah, book. It, I think it still follows the logical course of 84K and William Abbey. You can't be an environmentalist without also having opinions about economics, social housing, transport. Like you just, to be an environmentalist is to be part of the world overall and to engage this as a whole. So it's a very logical next step from having done, oh God, 84K, oh God, William Abbey. But I think the difference is that I am tired and I wanted to write something that made me feel like I was having a hug. I wanted a hug book instead of a book that made me sad about isms. Um, and yeah, Burning Age felt like more of a hug. Certainly it felt like a hug compared to Sweet Harmony, which again, I know I'm not selling my work. So I'm sat here going, oh, that book was grim and that book was grim and oh, <laughs> that book was particularly grim. But Sweet Harmony, my goodness, the haggis orgy, it was grim. Yes, the, the very uh, literature haggis orgy. <laughs> yep, yeah, not my, not my um, 
cleanest moment, but it's narratively relevant, I swear. It's an incredibly important <laughs> literary haggis orgy. I am dreadful at pitching my own stuff. I can't believe I've been doing this for 20 years and I'm sat here going, mate, the haggis orgy, I'm going to just zip it. <laughs> I mean, there's something to that, though, right? Because as soon as I finished Sweet Harmony, that was immediately how I pitched it to my co-bloggers was, hey, there's a uh, very interesting haggis orgy. <laughs> yeah, it was, um, it was, how, how can I express Sweet Harmony in a way that's not just about the haggis? It is a book about feminism. It is a book about body. It is a book about credit card debt, because those are three great combos you want. But again, I sort of feel... I feel if you're going to write stories about these things, what you need to do is write stories that are both simultaneously outrageous, but also incredibly honest in a way. Um, and so Sweet Harmony, I tried very hard to walk that fine line between the shocking sticks in the back of your throat makes you go, oh, God, um, but also the incredibly mundane of real life is having to work in a stationary shop in Bracknell. Like real life is worrying about how your face looks in the morning. Real life is bags under the eyes and difficult relationships, to say the least. Like, I, there's, again, I think one of the joys of genre boundaries blurring is the this strange line between fantasy and literature that I've vaguely been walking means that you can have both. You can have those things that just really hit you in the worst possible ways, but you can also ground it in something that makes you go, yep, that was my Thursday. Yeah. And also, I guess Sweet Harmony really felt like kind of just a whole episode of Black Mirror or something for me. It definitely had that feel to it. Yep. Yep. There were reasons for that, which I probably can't say anything about at this time. <laughs> Shucks. Uh, yep. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, I think I'm aware of those reasons as well. So uh, moving on. But yeah, so I do have to blame you for uh, my recent binging of episodes for the podcast How to Save a Planet this week. Um, I love how they always have calls to action at the end of each episode. Um, so in a similar vein, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. What little things can people do to live more sustainably? Oh, yay. I am, by the way, so thrilled that you asked that question. Thank you so much. Um, that means the world to me because at the end of the day, I am just a writer trying to churn out fun books full of lovely stories. And I know we've talked a lot about politics in this, but ultimately, fun books with fun stories and haggis orgies. But again, I feel I have the privilege to be able to churn out books that are also about stuff which I think is quite important. And this is the single most important thing. So thank you so much. Um, sustainable. Yay. Um, firstly, you should definitely buy all my books, though that may not feel like a sustainable choice at this time. Somehow it definitely is. Um, but also, it kind of depends on where you're at. It's worth saying that if you are sat there worried about your individual role on the planet, please know that 79, no, not 79, yes, yeah, 79% of all global emissions comes from 90 companies. So don't kick yourself, don't kill yourself. You can turn up in so many ways. You can sign the petitions, you can go out there and vote. Like every little thing you do makes you part of this gigantic movement that wants you and is here for you. You and me, we are together in all of this. And even that makes just the biggest difference. Turning up makes the biggest difference in the world. Personally, I find that it brings me a sense of agency and a sense of comfort to try and live a slightly more sustainable domestic life. I am not a fan of vegetables. I reluctantly am learning about vegetables. God damn it. Um, <laughs> but also, there's enormous resources out there. There's enormous kind of guides on the internet. The podcast, How to Save Your Planet, is really good at this on things that will work for you. You don't have to wear ashes and sackcloth. 
that there will be a path that is available to you can make you part of a community, whether that's changing one thing about what you eat or one thing about where you go or one thing just about how you communicate what you matter and how you think about what matters to you, how you choose to spend, whether you choose to spend in a slightly different way. There's a path for you that will both make a huge difference, but also will make you more and more part of this massive, massive community. And I certainly hope in Notes from the Burning Age that I've tried to showcase the value of that, the value of being part of something big and that being safe and wonderful and a hug in a book. Much like, in many ways, let's not kid ourselves, the fantasy reading community already is. If you feel warm and loved and hugged by the fantasy reading community, because let's face it, it's our lovely community that wants to give you a hug, then there is an environmentalist community out there that also wants to give you a COVID safe hug. Brilliant way to tie that all together. Thank you. And so looking forward, I often ask people what they're working on at the moment, but I know uh, I think you're currently working on a secret project that you can't really talk about uh, based on one of your blog posts. So I will just ask you, what is it like to be working on a series again? Because the Claire North name has almost been exclusively standalones. Um, it's a bit weird doing it's a trilogy. I think I can definitely say that. It's weird. It's wonderfully liberating in many, many ways because I know where I'm going for the next three novels. I say that book one is done, book two is nearly done. I know where I'm going. I've known when I've, where I've been going from the start. And that means I don't have to come up with what I believe has been lovingly described by a publisher as a unique high concept idea every single time. There's a clear narrative line and I can set up things in book one that will pay off in book three. And that's just, it's so nice to be able to weave that in, to be able to tell a coherent story in one book but also start to drop the breadcrumbs for things that are going to come back to bite us in the arse in book three. So it's been really lovely in a way. It is also a bit sad because I know I'm going to have to, not to put too fine a point in it, kill people I love in book three, and it's coming, and I'm sat halfway through book two going, but no, I love you so much, but it's got to happen. <sighs> the, the, the pity. Um, I've been surprised at how much work it is just in terms of keeping everything in my head. One book at a time, I can hold basically in everything in my head. Three books back to back, I'm like, okay, I now really need to build up spreadsheets of who everyone is and what everyone looks like so that when they do die a horrible death, they do so accurately. And my head has just not been very good at keeping track of all of that. So it's been, it's been fun. It's been interesting, even though it's a trilogy which follows the same character of the same story, to keep it slightly spicy and fun, it has three different narrators for each version. So the narrator for book one is very angry and quite bitter, which I've really enjoyed doing, by the way. It's just been very nice having this narrative voice walking through the pages going, genital warts for you and genital warts for you, and I hate you most of all. Um, but then there's this very sharp switch to book two in which the narrator is just lovely. She's just adorable um, and walks around just basically going, I love everything about your hair. I love everything about your chin. Look at your gorgeous little facey waisy. And so in that sense, that's helped keep it fresh. But also it means that I've now met the narrator for book three several times with the lens of book one and book two. I'm gearing up for book three already. And it's a bit like, I thought I knew everything about the narrator for book three, but having spent two books just observing her through other people's eyes, Turns out I was wrong. Everything is a surprise. And I didn't expect that to be the case either. So to put a long story short, it's been a lot of fun. But blimey, also, I've got some spreadsheets now. 
Yeah, uh, spreadsheets for figuring out how to most uh, crush readers' hearts with beloved character deaths. That's kind of exactly what I always imagined writers went through. I'm not usually a fan of that. I, I usually don't have the heart to genuinely kill someone I really, really adore. But in this particular case, I have no narrative choice and I'm already distraught. I feel like that's uh, an audio clip taken out of context could be used against you in a court of law. So, (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I mean, the Claire North brand has been pretty firmly in the literature standalones realm of the genre. So does this mean that maybe there might be a new pen name in your future? Um, I don't know. The books I'm currently writing are Claire North books. One of the joys of the name is that because it sits sort of across all genres, it straddles a lot. Um, you don't necessarily have to run away from it in the same way you might have had to run away from Kate Griffin or indeed from Catherine Webb, which sat very clearly in one particular genre. It's flexible enough that you can try and hit as many genres as possible. And again, I'm very grateful to my publisher's cunning for having achieved that. That said, I am 35 now. I've had three pen names in the last 20 years. I don't plan on stopping writing anytime soon. So that takes me to 55. I should be up to six, six pen names by then. Um, I thought I'd just work through all the name points of the compass. Charlotte East, Caroline South. uh, What's another name beginning with C? Katrina West, East, West. Yeah, West. Just kind of genre by genre, just work through the compass points. There you go. You got to hit all those points on the bookshelf. So no matter what you're looking for, you can find one of your books. I feel that that's basically creating a monopoly that stands against everything I believe in. (laughs) All right. So this is less looking forward and more looking sideways, I guess. But I did see that you keep a document on your computer full of potential story ideas that will probably never see the light of day. Um, Are there any of those that you could share? Any potential Claire North books that might have been written in an alternate timeline? Ooh. Um, There was a potential sequel to Harry August which would have been a lot of fun. Uh, I went to my publisher with it, but at the time there was a lot of other stuff happening that I can't really delve into. And they went, eh, mm, eh, eh. Um, I think they regretted that choice many years later, but stuff happened. So technically the idea still exists, but I suspect its moment has passed, which is a shame. There were a lot of Kate Griffin books yet to be written, which is a pity because I'd love to do that. But um, again, that moment may have passed us by. I'm trying to think, there is a full-blown historical novel I wrote maybe four or five years ago that sort of just got put on a to-be-dealt-with-later pile because before I could really get round to selling it, Orbit were back going, ah, but more Claire North. So there's kind of there's unwritten actual stuff just sat on a hard drive somewhere. I do hope I've kept that hard drive. I'm pretty sure I have. Anyway, there's actual novels sat in places. Um, that will probably never see the light of day. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> well, so I guess moving away from your own books, are there any books you've read lately and enjoyed that you can tell us about? Ooh, uh, let me think. So I've got a massive pile by the side of the bed. I am currently, this is dreadful, I'm reading three books at the same time, but I swear I have good nefarious reasons for it. So I'm currently reading uh, The Jasmine Throne by Tasha Suri, which I'm enjoying. I really enjoyed uh, Realm of Ash. Realm of Ash? Empire of Sound, Realm of Ash. Yeah, I thought they were a barrel of fun. But also very feelsy, which even I sometimes really enjoy. I really enjoyed those. I'm enjoying Jasmine Throne. I'm reading Book of Coley by M.R. Carey, who's always great. But I think Coley is particularly wonderful. Like what I've read of it thus far, I'm just like, yeah, this is this is awesome. And again, doing the kind of post-apocalyptic narrative, but doing it in a very interesting way that I don't think I've really seen much of before. Um, so I'm enjoying that. 
I'm reading Radio Life by Derek B. Miller, uh, which is, again, very similar themes. There's a lot of post-apocalyptic going on here. This is sort of a up-to-date homage, I guess would be the word, to Canticle for Leibovitz, which is also one of my favourite kind of classic fantasies. Would you call it Canticle for Leibovitz fantasy? Let's call it fantasy. One of my all-time favourites. So I'm kind of reading, I'm reading those. What have I read recently? In terms of hugs, The 10,000 Doors of January was quite nice. That felt like a, a book that didn't make me want to cry too much. Um, in terms of COVID, it's been hard to read things without going, oh, I'm full of feelings. Um, so I enjoyed 10,000 Doors of January. I really enjoyed Jelly by Claire Reese, actually, on a similar theme, both of which were Kitsch's books for an award that I was a judge on last year. I thought Jelly was really imaginative and a bit like Grasshopper Jungle, did a fantastically good job of going, YA is a really vivid and alive genre that does lots and lots of stuff, guys. Let's talk about how YA is brilliant. So yeah, Jelly and Grasshopper Jungle. Grasshopper Jungle, I can't remember who it was by, but it's a it's a book that did that. Um, we're both great. What else is by the side of the bed? It's a big pile by the side of the bed. I'm reading History of the Borgias, but I don't think that's relevant. Yeah, it's been a long pandemic. Wish I could give you more thorough answers. Apologies. Yeah, no, no problem. Um, and yeah, I'm also one of those people who likes to read three or four books at the same time. Um, so I definitely understand where you're coming from there. Thank you. Uh, and I love that this kind of comes full circle a little bit because uh, we've gotten to squee a bit about Tasha Suri's writing in uh, this interview. And in Tasha Suri's interview, we squeed about your writing. So, <laughs> Yay! I mean, I should admit, I know her as a human being as well. And I don't know that many writers because the community of writing is a complicated place full of complexity. Um, and I'm not very good at interacting very well with that. Um, but Tasha is an amazing human being as well as an incredibly talented writer. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so a uh, way I like to sort of close out all of these conversations is just asking you, what's one thing you're excited about right now? One thing. I'm excited by quite a lot of things. Can I be excited by like three things? You, you can share multiple things. Yeah, that's okay. totally fine. Um, I'm excited by the fact that vaccines might yet make us free. I'm scared of that because I don't have to function in the real world anymore, but I'm genuinely excited by vaccines in everybody's arms as much as is humanly possible. I'm excited by the fact that even though globally it feels like it's been a shit show forever and it still is a shit show in so many ways and places, I feel like we maybe possibly have the chance to get a handle on that and make a new and better choice for lots of things in lots of ways and lots of places. And we are starting to culturally, even if not politically, culturally, I think we are really starting to change conversations around connection and valuing each other. I think culturally, there's really exciting things happening. And then I guess because I'm a writer, I should probably say I am excited that I have books being published. But like, it's kind of my job to say that. And to be honest, like the next book out is my 22nd book. And I am excited by that. And definitely everyone buy it and read it. But mostly, I'm excited by the overall cultural shift towards us being better. That's really, really cool and interesting. And it gives me great hope when things are grim to be able to look at genre to be able to look at fantasy SF in particular, actually, but also be able to look at so many books and film and TV and go, you know what, we are doing better at representing humans in all of our diverse and exciting glory and telling stories about that, that aren't oppressive and aren't just the same old tropes. And we're doing better at using culture as a tool to bring us together rather than pull us apart. And that is genuinely really exciting to watch. Hard agree on all of those. Uh, I'm very excited about those as well. Um, and for me, uh, speaking of vaccines, I think tomorrow marks my official two weeks since my second jab. So definitely looking forward to that. Oh, congratulations. 
<laughs> Thank you. Um, I will definitely still be playing it safe because I live in the American South and a lot of other people are not playing it safe. I'm, I'm also very much about playing it safe. But also, let's face it, in the last 15 months, having an identity other than being the person wearing a mask and being a bit like, oh, I don't like this, has been hard. Yep. <laughs> Absolutely, it has. Okay, so, all right, I think that pretty much brings us to an end. This has been absolutely wonderful, Claire, and I think I've mostly managed to keep my fanboying to a bare minimum. So thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. You can find Claire North on Twitter as ClaireNorth42 or at her website, ClaireNorth.com. Claire North is one of my all-time favorite writers, and the topic of climate change is one that's near and dear to my heart. Trust me, you do not want to miss this book. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyin.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon or take a minute of your time to leave us a review online. It really means so, so much. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.